Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. So the good news is that the Boston Bruins are in the Stanley Cup final, which means that there is going to be copious amounts of healthy, uh, vitamin-rich uh, fish to mm. eat uh, mm. during the final. We'll, we'll be at a, in a coastal town. I can get, you can get fillets. You can get things that aren't necessarily fried. Fresh nice things plucked from the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, granted, there might be a little bit of mayo in that uh, lobster roll, but at least it's 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 fish. The bad news, and I and I don't say this uh, to besmirch the good name of the franchise, which obviously has been waiting fifty years for this to happen. The bad news is that the other team in the bracket is the St. Louis Blues, and that means I'm going to probably have a heart attack by the time we get to Game Six, if there is a Game Six, if necessary, because there's so much damn fried food in this place. I know we talked about last time the cuisine in the city. And I wanted to correct something. I didn't say that they eat raccoon. I said they eat like raccoons. They eat uh, garbage. It's I totally different. You have mistaken. to understand the nuance. Now, my problem isn't with the town necessarily. It's with the team. After the first period at home at Blues Games, after they've already given you boxes of popcorn and uh, giant uh, cylinders filled with uh, Bitto honeys and Jolly Ranchers and uh, York peppermint patties. Oh, boy. Then, they, after the first period, they bring out giant cauldrons of fried food. No. Fried ravioli. No, they don't. Fried, can, fried cannellini. Stop. Uh, chicken fingers. Yum. And then, and, and then people just line up and they eat it. So, I'm not one to look a giant fried gift cauldron in the mouth. I, of course, partake. Probably a little bit too much. Indulge. And so, I'm going to have to find the life food balance of healthy, broiled, and grilled fish in the beautiful coastal town of Boston, and then a giant cauldron of fried... Diving into the cauldron of fried things like I'm Scrooge McDuck diving into the money bin in St. Louis. Got bad news, Greg. I know you've been West Coast boy the last couple months, and you might have forgotten, but Boston is notorious for their candy selection in the press box. My diet the last spring has come... You know, consisted about thirty percent sweet green for lunch and about forty percent uh, mm-hmm. Reese's pieces in the press box. So, good luck. All right, this is good. So, enjoy this episode of ESPN on Ice before my untimely demise. <laughs> Coming up on the show, Tori Krug of the Boston Bruins, and lots and lots and lots of Stanley Cup Final preview stuff. All that and more on the latest edition of ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey everybody, it's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. Yeah, I'm here in St. Louis in the aftermath of game six. The Blues route what was left of the San Jose Sharks to advance to the cup final. Um, that's a rough one to watch, man. <laughs> I didn't like watching it. It was the opposite of fun. The moment that they hit the ice, did the Sharks, Sands, Eric Carlson, and Tomush Hurdle, both back home in San Jose, nursing injuries. Aww. And then they brought Joe Pavelski with them, and then he didn't join them in warm-ups. 
and Coach Pete DeBoer said after the game he wasn't even close to playing, you're like, oh boy, you just hate to see it go out like this. It reminded me of the 05-06 season where the Carolina Hurricanes advanced to the cup final by beating a Boston, I'm sorry, a, a Buffalo Sabres team rather, that I think was li- missing half its defense core in, uh, in a game seven. It was, it was a sense of inevitability. It was a sense that the Sharks had absolutely no chance of winning this game. It would just be if the Blues decided to choke it up and put the welcome mat down and have them waltz into a game seven. Because that lineup was so diminished and, uh, and you got a little bit of a woe is me thing going on here. You just kind of knew from the start, once you saw Pavelski not come out, that the Sharks probably were not going to win the day. The irony of the woe is me narrative, considering 90% of the rest of the league and fans are <laughs> talking about how lucky they've been just to get to this point. I know. Can I, let's, let's talk about luck for a second. My, my mentions have been flooded with my new friends from the Bay Area hmm. discussing the concept of luck. And they're all like, you keep on saying we're lucky you get to... Game seven, major penalty call, the hand pass, we're so lucky. Where's our luck now? Where's luck now? And I'm like, that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't be here were it not for incredible good fortune. The good fortune has gone, and now you're not here anymore. That's how luck works. You're proving my point. That's the whole thing. They, the, the hockey gods bestowed upon you a five-minute major penalty that shouldn't have been there and then plucked the referees from the rest of the postseason. They bestowed upon you an archaic offside call in Game 7 against Colorado, something that Coach Jared Bednar said is rarely, rarely enforced. And then you got to advance from that game. And then they gave you the the, the hand of God moment in Game 3 against the St. Louis Blues in which everybody on the ice somehow didn't see a hand pass. And then those officials were poof, gone from the postseason as well. I don't know if the NHL apologized for that one. These are incredible moments of good fortune. Now, this does not detract from how great the Sharks were in the playoffs. You still had to walk through the doors that were open to you. But please understand that because luck ran out, does not mean that luck never existed. Luck does not mean that you have it throughout the playoffs. Rare, rare is the team that does. The fact that you lost three guys to injury and then were ousted from the playoffs in Game 6 does not invalidate the fact that this team received some of the greatest breaks that we've seen in recent playoff history. All right, so Greg, you've been around this team. I want to pick your brain a bit. Uh, I want to get to the Blues, but let's just wrap up things with the Sharks. Please. In the postgame locker room last night, we saw the famous three-word beautiful quote from Joe Thornton. When he's asked, asked about his future and he says, no, no, nope. I, I believe I got those right in those order. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, tell me, what's the sense around the team? Have people talked about it? Do you have a sense of he's coming back? What's going on? No one really knows. Because, I mean, I, I, Joe's going to play as long as Joe wants to play. But... And do interviews shortlist as long as he wants to do that. <laughs> right, exactly. I think the real issue is that everybody on this team is now a year older. And in some cases, guys on this team aren't going to be here. I thought... Logan Couture had an even better quote last night from the Sharks' room, which, by the way, kudos to some of these guys for talking as much as they did last night because it's a tough spot to be in um, playing that game when when you're that shorthanded. And to, not to put too fine a point on it, but it sucked. It sucked to not see a best-on-best best game six and to know that one team <clears throat> clearly was at a disadvantage. But Logan Couture said, you know, the thing I hate most about being in the NHL is knowing that after a series like this, 
the team is going to be different next year. And it has to be. I mean, I know, right? So you have both the Joes that are UFAs. You have Eric Carlson, who's a UFA, and who knows what's going to go on there. I mean, I think they like him. I think he likes them. I think that they have legit concerns about his health at this point when you can't even play the guy in a critical playoff game because you're you're concerned he's not going to be able to play more than one period. I really wonder Um, how this playoff series and how the season really affected his free agency numbers. And look, he's still the sexiest defenseman name on the market. Um, yeah, he's going to get paid. That's just the way things go. But I think he has been devalued a little bit because he's of his injury got, history. He, he's got to have surgery. I mean, like even if it's just cosmetic, like just just say you went under the knife. That something got fixed because this is horrible. Yeah. Um. So you have him. You, you know that there's there's going to be probably the effort to get younger in some areas as well. It's uh it's going to be a really fascinating off season for the Sharks because the target was this season. And to their credit, they pushed it as far as they could go. They earned this. They got some breaks, like I said, but they earned it. And um, and it just it sucks that they didn't get a chance to really go at it full strength. And you know we haven't done a show since all of this happened. And and three games in which they the, the San Jose Sharks, a team that my God through the entirety of the playoffs, the easiest bet in the world was the over. I mean they were generating offense in every single game to generate two goals against the St. Louis Blues in the last three games of this series, I think is indicative of how banged up this team was and also indicative of how the the, sh- the Blues kind of just took this thing over with their forecheck and with Bennington back there. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with Thornton, and I don't know what's going to happen with Pavelski. Um, this is going to be a real interesting summer of transition. It's going to be a real interesting summer of Doug Wilson figuring out if he's going to make a go of it with this group one more time or if there needs to be some transitioning to the next thing. And the good thing, if you're a Sharks fan, is that you've got a, a core there. I mean, Burns is getting older, but Couture and Meyer uh, and Hurdle are, are clearly three players you can build around. Um, and you know you have an owner that's going to spend as much as possible to ensure that this team is still extraordinarily viable. I mean, look no further than being in the Tavares hunt last summer. So there's that. Um, I want to get to the Blues. I just want one more question for you. You've yeah. gotten to know Joe Pavelski a bit. Can you imagine him playing another uniform next year? I can't imagine him ever playing in another uniform. But, I mean, I couldn't imagine Patrick Marlowe playing in another uniform either. Mm-hmm. And that happened. Um, I, I think every indication is that they'll figure something out. Um, he's in, he's extraordinarily valuable, this team. And, and his stats this year show that he's not near the end of the road quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got mad respect for him. I mean, it's it's incredible that... that <laughs> Him getting a puck off the face and losing a bunch of teeth and then meeting the media afterwards with a, a bloody maw is seems like it happened 15 years ago uh, when it only happened in the first round because of what happened to him in Game 7 in, in the Vegas series. And then he comes back from that and battles through it. And unfortunately, a, a, a hit from um, Petrangelo that didn't even look that that horrible um, but but ended up kind of aggravating the injury for Pavelski, which is kind of a scary thing. Um, ended his his postseason, or at least put him out of Game Six. It's it sucks, and I hope he's back because I think he means a lot to that franchise. But again, you know, no contract at this point, so we'll see where they go. Um, so I'm gonna shift to the Blues. Yeah, I've just got to say, they have all of the ingredients for being the perfect team to root for if you are a bandwagon fan. <laughs> I will tell you why: long suffering fan base. Uh huh. A city uh-huh. scorned. Let's not forget that this is a city that lost the St. Louis Rams not too long ago. Uh, they were not fit enough to host an NHL, NFL franchise. Mm-hmm. They've got an adorable f- 
fan who's kind of become the avatar for their fan base in Layla Anderson, um, mm-hmm. who is sick for a while and could only go between uh, the hospital bed and home and now has been cleared to go to Stanley Cup games and become friends with uh, Alex Steen. It's a great story. You got the hometown boy who came home, Patrick Maroon, and his adorable son, who NBC, I know you haven't watched the games on TV, but just loves showing in the stands. It's excellent. <laughs> and then you got the team itself, who's just this plucky group of underdogs, and their leader, Craig Berube, who's just, it seems to me, just bustling with a good amount of confidence and instilling confidence in these guys. And I haven't even mentioned Jordan Bennington, whom people are now mentioning is one of the greatest postseason runs by a goaltender that we've ever experienced just because of its improbability. So if you're a bandwagon fan and you don't root for the city of champions that I'm so sorry, Boston, that the Celtics blew it for you that you couldn't get the city slammed this year. <laughs> uh, you can still go for 13 championships in 18 years. I digress. Yeah, yeah, uh, bad. Why would you not root for the Blues? Yeah. And then you got Charles Glenn, the anthem singer with MS that we wrote oh, about, who continues singing on every time the Blues win. And in fact, did a rousing rendition of when the Blues come marching in at the game last night, which I, I hadn't seen before. And it was quite a thing. Uh, you have uh, Bennington, obviously. You have the fact that you have this incredible cup drought. Um, I wrote about this today on ESPN.com. The idea that the Blues are sort of the NHL's wallpaper. We see it. But we never really think about it. <laughs> we think about the Maple Leafs, and they haven't won since sixties, you know, since the late sixties, and and neither are the Blues. We think about the Sharks. We thought about the Capitals. We think about these teams that lose in spectacular fashion in the postseason, but no one ever really, um, you know, thinks about the Blues in the same way because they made the playoffs all these times and didn't have the same dramatic exits as those teams. Um, we think about the Flyers mainly because we like to make fun of the Flyers for not winning since seventy-five. The Blues, Very for whatever reason, yeah, the Blues are just there. And so you, you have this fan base that's been thirsting for a cup for generations, and you have these players, and this is really, I can't say it's unique to the Blues, but it's always been portrayed that way by the people in the organization, where guys that played there still hang around there. You know, Bob Plager, Plager back in the day, an original Blue, still around the team at all times, to the point where his... Gloves from the 1960s became their their uh, dressing room trinket they would hand out to the hardest working player at the game last night. Chris Pronger's there. Brett Hull is sitting in a bar, shocker, and uh, and 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 watching the game go 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 by, and then he's just sitting there, kind of taking in it afterwards. Kelly Chase openly weeping after the game in in the hallways near the locker room to the point where Vladimir Tarasenko is like, "We got choked up looking at it." Um, there's a there's. There's a he was great by the way last night um, on the ice and off the ice. There's a there's a connection in this this franchise and the Bruins have it too. I don't want to shortchange them, but there's a connection in this franchise between the players that have come through and the players that are there that are there now, where the players that came through are looking at this team now and saying this is the best chance we've ever we've like collectively as a franchise because they still consider themselves part of it we've ever had at winning a cup and it means something to the current players to have those old guys those old farts farting around talking about it in those terms it's 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 something i really haven't witnessed before where they're they're they feel like they're carrying the weight of history with them as they push towards this cup obviously playing for themselves obviously playing for each other obviously playing for the group that went from last place in the NHL on January 2nd to a playoff seed to the Western Conference Championship but also with an eye towards 
the old guys and the old guard, the guys who, you know, as 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 uh, Pietrangelo put it last night, um, you know, respect the note on the front of the jersey. Like they're playing for them too. It's a really interesting dynamic there. On top of the fact that, like I said, that no one appreciates how deep this drought for this franchise has been. You know, it's funny to me because it seems a little bit different than the narrative surrounding the Washington Capitals last year, who similarly had a very, very long drought um, and had some good postseason success. Um, and probably mm-hmm. because most of that postseason success came with this current core. And so it was more about the weight on Alex Ovechkin's shoulders. Um, yeah. It and was, he- yeah. Right. And it's not it's not like, you know, Peter Bondra and Dale Hunter and guys like that were hanging around and, you know, being a part of that story too much. It was very much about the Ovechkin team. It's a different vibe with the Blues for whatever reason. Um, it's and, and it gets you a little bit when you see, you know, some some old guy that played in 67 for an expansion team basically be like, maybe I can get my parade finally. Like, that's what that's what Bob Plager said. To, uh, my parade? To, to, to well, yeah, he said that's a Ryan O'Reilly. He said he, he when when a Ryan O'Reilly arrived this last summer, they had a ceremony in August, um, debuting the new third jerseys for the Blues. And Bob went up to Ryan O'Reilly, and he said something to the effect of, "Hey, can you finally get me my parade, my Stanley Cup parade?" And O'Reilly said something back like, "Yeah, yeah, that's what we're gonna do." And it's just like lovely, lovely little moments all the way through about how this group, for whatever reason, clicked and had the chemistry and 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 came together. And listen, like a certain member of this podcast pointed out last summer, had a great summer putting this team together. Did Doug did did Doug Armstrong? Doug Wilson did too, but so did Doug Armstrong. Uh, so it's it's a really we'll we'll get into the nuts and bolts of this lineup when we start talking about them versus the Bruins, but. Um, it's a great story. And, and and like you said, Emily, like there's a billion sort of sidebars right now to this journey for them that make you be like, and we haven't even, we even talked about Gloria yet. My God. I mean, it's okay. I think Gloria's got enough airtime lately. Oh, I'm, I, it's, they play it too much. It's just too much. Like every time you turn around, they're playing it, but I mean, after they win. But I'll say, here's my observation on Gloria before we get to our guest. No one knows the words. Now, I know that for a fact because I heard Frank Saravelli, our good friend at karaoke, uh, 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 Gloria on the road, didn't know the words. But I also say that because after game six, uh, the, they play Gloria as the Blues are celebrating. It's their, you know, as you, you may or may not know, their official victory song this year because a bunch of Blues heard it in a Philadelphia bar and they decided to adopt it and yada, yada, yada. And they play the song and the crowd goes, Gloria! And then there's just not like there's nothing because no one knows the words. <laughs> they could sing every single syllable of, uh, you know, uh, West Virginia, country roads. They can sing every single syllable of living on a prayer, all the small things. But Gloria, it's just Gloria. No, nothing, 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 nothing. Gloria. That's what you heard from the crowd last night. It's very exhilarating. Um, but a great victory song at that. All right. Tory Krug is a defenseman for the Boston Bruins, getting ready to play these very blues we've been talking about, and he was kind enough to join us on the podcast. Joining us now, Tory Krug, defenseman for the Boston Bruins, your Eastern Conference champions, and a well-rested group at that, I'm sure, at this point, with the amount of time between series. First question, Tory. Uh, where did you watch Game 6 of the Western Conference Final, if, in fact, you did indeed watch it? last night 
yeah, I just just watched it from home. Um, you know, it's obviously I get very excited when uh, there's a hockey game on TV, especially with all the downtime right now. So I was looking forward to it, and um, it's exciting for the city of Boston, or, uh, city of St. Louis to to go to a Stanley Cup final. So I feel for you guys that you have 10 whole days of having to come and talk to the media about the same stuff because nothing has changed. Uh, but your coach has done a good job of kind of keeping things fresh. And one of the things Bruce Cassidy said recently was he felt like one of the turning points for your team this season was the Winter Classic and that whole Peaky Blind Binders thing. How much <laughs> pride did you personally take in that when you heard that? <laughs> uh, I haven't really thought about it too much from a personal standpoint. I mean, um you know, I thought we we looked pretty damn good, <laughs> pretty sharp. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. But um, I think it was one of the one of the moments, one of the many moments. To be honest, I think uh, you can't really for any team or any season you can't point to one particular instance uh, that was a turning point for the team or uh, where a team realizes how good they can be. But that was definitely one of them, and it brought the group together. So uh, we've been a tight knit group from day one, and especially with our core and. Uh, how willing the young guys are to learn, and um, it just—it's all worked out well. So, uh, pretty cool that it's, it's worked out so far, and hopefully, it can uh, take us to the end. That's the, one of the things that really impressed me. I was—I read about this earlier this year with um, with with uh, Z and and how he's sort of the the grandmaster as far as teaching on the blue line goes, and how many guys have played with him and then gone on to kind of teach others like Carlo and players like that. For for you and and your experience in Boston, what's it been like to uh, to learn under the tutelage of uh, of the Jedi the Jedi Masters of the Anachara? Well, it's funny because you know people look at um, us two, you know, with their eyes, and they they see two completely different players, and um, <laughs> obviously for for obvious reasons, um, and and they wonder what could a guy like myself possibly learn from a player like him and. Um, I think I've, I've learned a lot of things over the years. His preparation is second to none. Uh, his work ethic, um, if you're working harder than Zidane Chara, uh, I don't know what, I don't know what you're doing. So, um, you know, no one works harder than he does. Uh, but I've learned a lot to, on the ice and how to be simple. Um, I think when he's playing simple, he's at the top of his game and there's no one that can compete with him. So that's, that's really, uh, enlightened me. And then his approach to, um, you know, his preparation, he knows every single guy's tendencies on the other team. And if he doesn't, he's asking the, the assistant coaches, he's asking the video guy what they've seen from, you know, so-and-so in games past on video and film. And um, I think his preparation is something that's, um, I think, driven him to, to greatness and something that I've appreciated. He had a pretty epic um, talk with the media recently about his thoughts on leadership and what makes you guys a team and he doesn't look at anybody any differently and I know he doesn't even like using the word rookie he, he corrects to call it a first year player do you remember when you first came to the team of, of how he made you feel welcome and, and your first impressions of him uh yeah I mean he's it, it's it's tough for a young guy uh to walk into our locker room I'll be completely honest with you if you're gonna <laughs> walk into our room and and try to have a conversation with uh, Patrice Bergeron, Zidane Ochara, um, David Krejci. You go down the list, it's pretty intimidating. So that is, in itself, it's tough to do just to come into our room. But um, what people probably don't understand is how welcoming those guys are, and, and Z is a big part of it. Um, he is obviously uh, doing his own thing and, and trying to prepare the right way and um, everything like that, but he's he's just – 
his conversations and his uh, willingness to, um, you know, let guys do their own thing and um, obviously get to the rink and, you know, enjoy uh, his time at the rink has been special. You know, I've watched it over the years uh, change and develop, and he's matured as a leader, even though he's, you know, 42 years old or, or whatever he is. Um, you know, he's changed over the last five years, and it's been special to watch, and I'm glad I'm, I'm able to be a part of it. That's awesome. What uh, what What's impressed you the most playing under Bruce Cassidy? It's, it's funny. I feel like an an old old jerk now, but I covered Cassidy in his first gig in Washington, and uh, I think if you ask those guys, a lot of them thought he might not come back and coach again. It just didn't work out, you know. And then he comes back years later, and he's a different guy and a different coach. What happens behind the scenes with you guys that really impresses you with with how Butch handles things? Well. This is my, my second go-around with him. Um, I played for him in Providence, you know, six, seven years ago. And, you know, he's changed even from then. You know, he was really hard on us as players and, and young guys, and he still holds us to an extremely high standard. I think that's, you know, what's not, which is what has nudged us in the right direction. Um, I think from an X's and O's standpoint, I have not met a, a smarter hockey person. You know, I've not come across a smarter hockey person. He's he can uh, look at watch a game and see it from so many different vantage points and, and point out what the other team is doing. Um, you know, he knows what their weaknesses are from a power play standpoint. He gives us so many cues that you know when this guy does this, this is the seam or this is the pass that we should be looking for. This is uh, the approach we need to have against this team. And I just think from an X's and O's standpoint, he sees the game like no one else. All right, last one for me, Tori. Uh, we talked earlier in the postseason about Brad Marchand. Um, I know you're really close with him and the public perception versus what you guys see in the room. And as this postseason has gone on, um, is there anything about the discourse of him that's frustrated you? I know he's he's kind of changed in ways in the sense that he hasn't been suspended at all, but he still feels like he's irking teams and getting up to some antics. <laughs> What's your take on that and, and how it's kind of unfolded this postseason? Uh, yeah, well, what I see is you know, a guy that doesn't care what the perception is of him, I think. Uh, and I say that, you know, in a respectful way because he's obviously been trying to clean up his image and uh, he knows the the way he is perceived outside this room. But I think what matters to him most is how we perceive him as a teammate and how, you know, everyone else that is important in his life, you know, sees him, such mm-hmm. as his family. And uh, he's a great dad. Um, you know, he's just an awesome person. So uh, I think, you know, from that standpoint, all he's worrying about right now is, is trying to win and trying to bring his best to the, the the rink every single day because he's such a great teammate and, um, you know, he's pushing for greatness. So I think you, you see a guy that's uh, developed over the years, not only um, his game because, you know, his game speaks for itself. He's now a 100-point player in the National Hockey League, which, you know, even when I first came in the league, I don't know if I saw that. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> You know, now you see a guy that's that's trying to grow up and become a leader in this team, and you know he takes it to heart. So uh, he, he's a great teammate. He wants to be a great teammate, and uh, we're so fortunate to have him. Because man, I would absolutely hate to play against him, and I'd probably do something stupid against him too. Hundred penalty minutes for sure. Now, I don't know about hundred points. I think I'm, I'm with you on that one. Uh, exactly. Last one for me. You, you've played in front of Tuca for so long, man. And uh, right now, got to be the clubhouse leader for Con Smythe. He's played incredibly well. From your vantage point, what's what's been the difference for for Tuca during this playoff run? 
I don't know. I think it's, you know, probably um, all aspects of his game are, are coming together. I think, you know, mm-hmm. I can tell he's in the zone is when he's playing the puck with a purpose and he's, um, you know, moving it to us, you know, clean. I think uh, that's a big indicator for me that he's playing well because there's moments where in the past he would just come out and wouldn't care where the puck would go. He um, wouldn't exactly put us in a great spot, you know, passing to a defenseman. But I think now he's so dialed in that um, I know he's not worried about other facets of his game because, um, you know, he's focused on playing the puck and putting it in a good position. So that's something that I've realized. Um, that's when I know he's in the zone and he's so comfortable in his routine right now. He's, uh, you can see how comfortable he is in the net. He's not overextending. He plays within his crease and he's not scrambling too much. And all those are indicators of a, a goaltender that are, that is feeling it right now. Awesome. Tori, thank you so much for your time. You're very generous. Um, get ready for a billion questions about David Backus now that you guys are playing the blues. <laughs> That's going to happen. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and good, good luck in the Looking final, man. To. Thanks for your time, man. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Appreciate thanks, it. Tori. Our thanks to Tori Krug and the Boston Bruins for joining us. And, yeah, you know, he is going to get a ton of questions on David Backus and a lot of other very expected questions because we media are very predictable. Do you know what's mm-hmm. unpredictable, Greg? What's that? Whatever number we get from Satch each week. Let's hear it. <laughs> hey, Greg and Emily. Boston is trying to do this for the first time since 1935. Mm. Right. First of all, we should always give Satch uh, lithium before he does his his number. This is nice and <laughs> sultry. Uh, look, I, I think I know this one. It's well, it's something about three championships in one city, and so maybe it's the combination of winning NFL, mm-hmm. MLB, and NHL in one calendar year. I'm pretty sure that's that's it as well. Um, I think it's Detroit in the 35-36 season. I don't have it. I don't have an. I'll, I'll take the L. I don't have an alternative to what you just said because I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But but uh, Satch got your number rules dictate whoever goes first uh. gets first crack. So I think you're going to win it, win this one. But let's see what what he says. Boston is trying to be the first city or technically metro area to win the championships in Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NHL in a 12-month span since Detroit mm-hmm. did it in mm. 1935. Did I get an extra wow. half point, even though I totally Look interjected to get the first answer in? Did you Did you write that for him? That was... uh, I did not, but I was doing a little research of my own last night. Mod is late as Satch was staying up to give us this number. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I, I did see that uh, circulating. <laughs> there you go. He got done. He got done watching Wine Country on Netflix, and then immediately went to, "Oh, I've got to do the number." And it was like three in the morning. I haven't seen it yet. It's 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 in the queue right now. uh, All star uh, cast. Ruby and I are going through uh, Mad Men again on Netflix. That's been our our go to nighttime thing. Have you seen Fleabag yet? I saw the first season of Fleabag and absolutely adored it. That is it. That is like Barry on HBO a uh, an elliptical show for me so when I'm mm-hmm. done with the run of Barry which is, I've only had a couple more Barry episodes on the left. elliptical? That could get kind of violent That keeps, keeps me going you kidding me? Come on <laughs> get the juices going You see the season I want, Ellie? I want, I want, no I'm telling you I didn't see it yet I, I don't I, know if I, I watched was, that on a treadmill Look I, I need to get a body like NoHo Hank um, it's it, it's imperative so you that's why I do need to get a voice like NoHo Hank <laughs> And then I watched the first season of Fleabag. I loved it, and I can't wait for the second. Yeah, it's all. I'm halfway through the new season, and it's just as awesome. And I forgot about it because it was like three years ago when I first watched it. Scathingly funny. It's kind of, 
there, I mean, I'm a huge Killing Eve fan, so there mm-hmm. is sort of a shared DNA between those two shows that Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote, but, like, it's kind of crazy that those two things popped out of the same person's head. Brilliantly talented. Speaking of brilliantly talented, the Boston Bruins and the St. Louis Blues are playing for the Stanley Cup, Emily, as we go off our uh, Pucksoupian pop culture uh, uh, sidebar. So... Listen, my brain is poisoned because I've been watching the Blues for the last two weeks. Um, I think they're really good. And I, and I know a lot of people think this is a lopsided battle between these two. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are very, very high on the Bruins. And as well they should be. They're really good. Do you know what the difference about this Bruins team and maybe some of the other teams uh, in the past that didn't quite make it or, or made What's a long that? run? They're healthy. Yeah, I feel like every year there has been something like it's a, a nagging groin for Patrice Bergeron or mm-hmm. Krejci was out, Marchand. But besides, you know, Zinotaro, who by my understanding, it was all precautionary why he didn't play in that clinching game against Carolina. <clears throat> like mm-hmm. this is a really healthy team. Um, and yeah. that's scary. It um, is. And, and it's scary how good Tuka's playing. Like we mentioned with Tori Krug, he's been the, he's been the MVP of the playoffs. He's the been stat in trouble. I can't get over him in clinching games. Yeah. Three and oh. With the chance to eliminate uh, opponents, stops ninety five of ninety six shots. That's a nine ninety save percentage. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the Blues and you say they are now um, f- five and zero. Oh, I think it is in um, games. Oh wait, no, no. I'm sorry. I think they're six and zero oh now in games in which they could force a clinching game. And then in the clinching game, like they Ooh, nice in, in, in the in the coffee is for closers world of sports. They get a giant uh, jug of coffee uh, for these efforts. I, listen, I, I'm fascinated by this. Like as good as the Sharks and Bruins would have been storyline wise, I think competitively this might be even a better series. The, the Blues right now are playing at their best. Um, they have. All four lines rolling pretty much, although the maroon line has been a little bit iffy. I think Thomas is banged up. Uh, defensively, they've been great. I mean, again, as we mentioned off the top of the podcast, like the Sharks were diminished, but they're not diminished to the point of only scoring two goals in three games against the Blues. That's, that's indicative of two things. The forecheck that the Blues used all season to control play and a certain little gentleman named Jordan Bennington back there who has been as unflappable as Jordan Bennington will be the first to tell you that he is. <laughs> and he's, he's, the prophecy's been realized. Nothing gets to this kid. Um, 25 year old kid. So, like, I, I'm just fascinated by this matchup. I, I think it's a really intriguing one. And I, and I think these two teams match well. And I think it's going to be a hell of a physical series. Yeah, uh, definitely physical. Uh, I feel like the Blues really. Um, became very aggressive against the San Jose Sharks, and especially with their forecheck. That's what really got them going. Uh, mm-hmm. Some similarities I see between both teams, balanced scoring. Uh, I know the Blues, I think they're at 17 or 18 guys have, have scored a goal this postseason. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Boston, I believe, is at 19 different Bruins have scored, uh, which is pretty incredible. The Bruins, too, though, they have a sizzling power play. It is insane. It's historically good. The only other team that's played at least 15 games in the playoffs that has a better mark than their 34% right now was the 81 Islanders, who finished at 37. Look, you don't need a great power play to win the Stanley Cup. The 2011 Bruins power play was actually pretty bad. It was, like, oh very, very bad. Was uh, it ever? But that is, you know, something that strikes fear in opponents, and it certainly quieted the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, a couple of storylines that I think you're going to hear a lot of. Too much rest. I think we're going to hear that probably until, like, at most the first period of Game 2. 
Um, but look, we, we've seen it in this postseason where a team that swept in the previous round got swept in the next round and maybe uh, wasn't as fresh as they could be. And, and I also want to remember that last year, the Golden Knights, they had about a week off before the Stanley Cup final. I believe it was exactly a week. And they came out really flat against the Capitals, I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we are always about recency bias in NHL reporting, and, and that's the recency we've seen. Um, you know, we're going to talk about one last squeeze for this core. That's kind of a complicated storyline because, yes, you know, there's, there's technically six players if you count Stephen Camper, but five regulars remain from that 2011 team. And, you know, they're getting up there in age. You know, Char is 42. He's a legend. Bergeron's going to be remembered as one of the greatest Bruins of all time. Um, but they're all kind of under contract for a while. A lot of them are. You know, Bergeron's around until 2021-22. Uh, Marshand, unfortunately, fortunately for our buddy Tori Krug, is in a Bruins uniform until 2025. Uh, <laughs> so they probably should have another chance to win, considering how well they did retool on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say this about special teams: the Blues have scored a power play in four consecu- on the power play in four consecutive games. Uh, they went through an 0 for 18 streak in the previous um, uh, round, but uh, but boy, have they been good! Uh, Five for 21, including two for two, I think, in game six. You have to take into account that some of that is thrown off by the garbage time power plays they got when the Sharks started gooning it up at the end of game five. So they've been even more efficient than that. Uh, and then on the kill, which, you know, as, as you mentioned, is going to be maybe the real game here between the Bruins power play and, and the, the Blues penalty kill. They only allowed two power play goals all series to the Sharks, which is remarkable when you consider how good the Sharks' power play is and how much talent they throw out there. So that'll be a really interesting special teams battle. Um, if you had asked me about this matchup two weeks ago, I would have given the Blues a significant advantage at the forward spot. But boy, have the Bruins done a good job in alleviating concerns about their depth. Their fourth line has been incredible. They're getting, like you said, contributions throughout the lineup. I think it might even be a push. And that's saying something because the Blues are playing as good as they possibly can at the forward, at the forward spot right now. Um, the goaltending could be a push. Uh, Bennington's numbers aren't Tuka's numbers, but I've seen enough from him to know that he's not going to be a liability. I, I, I think that he is not, he's not necessarily taken over games like Tuka has. Um, but he's, he's certainly closed out games. I mean, that's he had stone cold saves. And he's had a couple save. He had a couple saves in the third period last night when that was still a game mm-hmm. that delivered the victory. I think to the Blues in a lot of ways. And the Blues weren't getting any shots themselves. But I'm. It's going to be really interesting, man. Like you said, the layoff's going to be a big key here because we're talking about a Blues team that just outscored the San Jose Sharks like twelve to, to two. Little. Yeah, I mean it's it's insane how well they've played in the last three games. And to their credit, too, like. The mentality and the focus of this team has been really impressive. Think about think about how many teams we cover that absolutely would have gone to the dark side after the hand pass situation and just like got all boo boo faced and this is our lot in life kind of thing. And the blues were like the blue the blues were more pissed off about it having gone to overtime than they were about what happened in overtime. They made the decision to not lament the the play, but to talk about why the play even mattered, and that made. And since that point, they've been unbeatable. It was a really interesting little psychological trick, and it tracks back to Craig Berube, their coach, who just walked into that room and said, "Don't think about it. 
you know, put it out of your heads. It's it's just not even something worth troubling yourself over. We should have never been in that situation. And the players all kind of grok to it. If it sounds like I'm kind of leaning blues, it's because I'm leaning blues. <laughs> Interesting. I, I just think they're so locked in. And I, and I think that... Um, I think look, that recency look, look, bias is look, a thing and you covered the blues re- last round. Re- recency bias is a thing and, and also... As much as I am someone who will go into the numbers and crunch them and come up with reasons that are logical as to why one team will defeat the other team. And by the way, pause for a moment. One of only maybe like two people in the ESPN experts picks that had the blues coming out of the Western Conference. Mm. Would I mean, the other I, I, say Vaughn Vince Massey? No, no. Vince had the the Golden Knights. <laughs> Coming out of the West, um, and and and, 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 and and you know we don't have to talk about the fact that you know the, I had lightning coming out of the other side, but um, but there's there's a lot of I don't want to say this because it's going to sound stupid, but I'm going to say it anyway because all I do on this podcast is sound stupid. There's a lot of cosmic things happening with the Blues right now Ooh. that we talked about earlier, and it's hard for me to look at the kid and Gloria and. All this stuff, the the worst to first thing, the searching for your first cup thing. Ever since the Cubs broke the timeline, all these teams that never win start winning. You're right. It's all tracks back to Chicago. That's right. The so, center of the universe. If I had to make a an informal pick, because keep in mind, nothing that Emily and I say in this podcast matters. It's only what goes in print on the website. That's true. That's the only thing that can be screenshotted. My informal pick would be Blues and Six. You know what? Yeah. As I'm getting on you for a recency bias because you covered the Blues last round. <laughs> I've been in Boston all spring. <laughs> Give me Boston and Six. <laughs> Boston and Six went on the road. Oh, that's the other thing I love about the Blues, too, is they play really well on the road. Really, really well. Insane. Seven and two, right? Yeah. So, all right. May, may, may the best informal prediction win. And these will probably be the formal ones informal, at some point. Formal predictions, these, uh, we still have a chance to change our minds. That's the beauty of podcasting versus the written word. Um, all right. Well, we only have one guest this week. Why would you need a, another one? Tori Krug is incredible. Uh, so let's get right to our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's our weekly look at the foibles and hyperbole of the hockey media and sometimes the sports media in general. These Phil Kessel trade rumors are kind of fun. I saw Mike Russo sniffing around the idea that that Kessel could end up in Minnesota as everyone who's ever played in Minnesota. Yeah, do you know who he also said could end up in Minnesota? Who's that? Joe Pavelski and William Nylander. Pretty much any player that has a contract expiring or is subject to trade rumor. Yeah, because that's a good idea because what they should really do is get older. Um, Michael Mulvihill is the executive vice president of programming and research for Fox Sports. Now, this is one of those... Sports, Phil Kessel loves hot dogs versus hockey because the hockey media, by and large, outside of Jim Matheson <laughs> questioning whether or not Ryan Ellis is worth the money he earns, we can't keep on going down the Edmonton road on this stupid podcast. Um, I'd like someone to crunch the stats of how many Edmonton-related Phil Kessel hot dogs we've had this year versus all other teams and sports. Yeah, we can't we can't keep on going down that road. It is like hitting a beer-filled pinata. Uh, so we will turn to Mike Mulvihill uh, of Fox Sports. He's the EVP of programming and research. He wrote, 
with uh, 13.6 million live viewers, the Game of Thrones finale would have ranked 71st among all NFL games in live viewership last season. <laughs> Listen, I ain't no TV programmer, but I I, I know the difference between a, a, a square and a, a rectangle. Pro- <laughs> uh, yeah, and a program available to the masses to the point where you can get it on an antenna versus a subscription service show that, frankly, many people don't watch live um, in Game of Thrones. And also that many people pirate in Game of Thrones. Um, this is the NFL as well. I'll put that caveat yeah. in there. Oh, sure, but it ain't to this level. And like, I mean, you said, you know, circle and square. This is, this is like apples to, you know, to ravioli. Yeah, this is, it's just like you couldn't get more different than these two things. He then doubled down and said, consider the points you're all, this is after you got ratioed. Consider the points you're all making are exactly why the comparison is meaningful. It's the difference between stuff you can watch anytime versus stuff you have to see live. It's not. <laughs> one is a scripted show. One is a live sporting event. One is available whenever you want to watch it. One has to be consumed in that moment. It just could not be more different. And I don't, I, it is, as someone who, as a hockey fan, can sniff out, please like my sport, like a, like a pig sniffing out a truffle. This is please like my sport to the nth degree from a football guy. I mean, my God. I had no idea that pigs love truffles. Boy, do they. My, my best friend Andy um, actually went on a trip to, I believe it was Spain, and went truffle hunting with, with piggies in I the forest. You learn a lot more about pigs, clearly. Yeah. I don't know if they were like large enough to ride, because that'd be pretty cool. Just a large prehistoric pig sniffing out truffles in the forest. Those the same truffles that for like five shavings in a Manhattan restaurant you pay a hundred dollars. It's pretty good. I don't know why people mine for gold when truffles are so much more valuable. Uh, now it's time for puck headlines. Dateline PWHPA. The elite women's hockey players that are choosing to sit out for a season now have their own players' association. Emily, that's the one big news in women's hockey this week. The other big news is that. The NWHL, uh, which everybody just assumed was in its death throes, is starting to sign players for the upcoming season. They are. Uh, there's four players who have announced the sign. Uh, it's going to be hard to field the league with four players. But look, it's early in free agency period. We'll see what happens. Uh, but this is really interesting to me, this Players Association. And look, it's not a labor union uh, by definition. we got to differentiate that. Uh, but... The biggest issue in the women's hockey landscape is everything has been fragmented. Uh, you know, there's been different voices, different competing interests, so such. And this is just bringing all these voices together. There's going to be a nine-person uh, panel. Um, and I'm told that it's going to include Canadians, Americans, Europeans, players, you know, superstars like maybe a Kendall Coyne to maybe like a fourth-line plug. So all voices will be represented. They're kind of all in one central place. And this will help them navigate the next year as they play <clears throat> without a league and, and what comes forward after that. I've seen this word thrown around about the NWHL players that are re-signing with the league, uh, and the word is scab. No, 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 no. It is, it is a, is a very bad word to use as a kid who grew up in a union household and without that union household would not have had health benefits nor probably money for my education. Um, and it's not like that. It's not a boycott. You can't be a scab if you already work for the league. Like, you're a scab if, if you are somebody who is replacing somebody who is striking. That's a scab. Scab is not Madison Packer deciding to come and play for the team she's played for for the last four or five years. 
Well, and the other part of the issue, and this is why the association exists, is that there's been competing interests. And, you know, not all players subscribe to this. We're going to sit out a year. Like, it didn't serve everyone, and there was some lack of communication. Um, Like I said, it's a fragmented community, and there are some that are loyal to the NWHL. And honestly, good for them, because that league gives women opportunities to play, even if it's not perfect. You're exactly right. And, and you know, a lot of women that are playing in the NWHL probably look at a a WNHL or whatever and say, where's my spot going to be? You know, if you take all the CWHL players and all the NWHL players, I mean, there's a finite number of roster spots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, creating as many opportunities as you can as a, as a women's player, I think, is, is paramount. And at the end of the day, it's not about, like, defying the wishes of the rest of your of, of your sisterhood. It's about a business decision. The The elite players made theirs, which is to suck the oxygen out of the NWHL until it dies and then go forth with a different league. And then the women who decided to re-sign with the NWHL made their business decision. I don't think either one of them should be criticized for it. It's just business at Amen. the end of the day. Um, Dateline Ottawa. Patrick Waugh has been meeting apparently with GM Pierre Dorian about potentially becoming the next head coach of the Ottawa Senators. This is the kind of like flashy, big, bold-faced name headline move I thought the Senators might try to pull with their head coaching spot. I just thought they'd pick a guy that might be a better coach than Patrick Waugh, who I think in the the years after his stunning debut, when if, you know, you don't remember, he tried to fight Bruce Bruce Boudreaux on opening night. <laughs> Through the glass partition between the benches, um, he he proved himself to not exactly be the greatest coach of the Colorado Avalanche, and then you know quit and and took his ball and went home um, in August. So uh, I will say this: yeah, that's that's where they're going, I guess. We talk all the time about players can change. We just heard Tory Crew talk about how Bruce Cassidy has changed, even from his time in the AHL. Let's. Open us up to the possibilities that the Ottawa Senators are making a smart hire and they found uh, a man who is looking for redemption and, and has, can, can connect with the modern NHL. I'll go, I'll go with you. I'll go with you on that. Cause three of the four coaches in, in the conference final were retreads. Pete DeBoer was on his third team. Craig Berube was on his second team. And, uh, and Cassidy was on his second team. And I firmly believe that um, retread has become a, a dirty word in this league, and it shouldn't be because I think that, like you said, guys can learn. So, I'll, I'll go with you on that. Um, but I also think he's a bad coach, and maybe shouldn't be coaching the Ottawa Senators. And maybe there are a lot of other guys, including Troy Mann, that should get a shot there. Uh, Dateline Edmonton. The Great Purge continues. Craig McTavish, he's in Russia. Dwayne Sutter, he's been he's been let go. JJ A. Bear, their PR guy, also let go, which was a really? surprise. Yeah, oh. they let him go yesterday. I know. He's a good dude. Um, once you get to know him. And, uh, and it sounds like Dave Tippett could be the front runner for the Oilers head coaching gig. Um, are we feeling better about culture change with Edmonton now that we do see that some of the quote unquote old boys network is being jettisoned in one case to Russia? <laughs> I I felt better about it ever since Ken Holland took over because Ken Holland it seems to me like a no BS kind of guy and he can parse through okay this is what's not working and I can trim the fat uh, so I, I believe in him and, and I'm curious to see what this organization looks like in October because I mm. you know if you look at the masthead uh, from the end of last season to next season I, I imagine it's going to look quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, Dateline Raleigh. 
We talked about Joe Thornton before and his cloudy future. Um, you covered the uh, hurricanes a lot this year. Justin Williams sounded a little bit on the fence about what his future might hold. What do you think uh, is going to happen to Jay Willie in the future? I think he's going to take some time off. I think he's going to assess his body and see where he's at. I don't think he was playing totally 100% uh, for parts of the season. And uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he comes back as a you know, one-year deal with the Hurricanes to try to finish it out <clears throat> with a score. I wouldn't be surprised by that. I also wouldn't be surprised if he ended up standing right next to Rod Brindamore next year as an assistant coach because he basically was this year. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't shock me either if he decides that the body doesn't doesn't want to do it anymore. All right, now it's time for the ESPN and Ice Rant Line. Why can we not review the plays that the referees blow? I mean, the Sharks have now gotten two games, arguably, uh, thanks to referee blown calls. And I don't know if we need to tell Toronto to call directly uh, to each of the games. Is Toronto even watching at this point? Are they sad that the Leafs are out again and they just decided to mail it in for the rest of the freaking playoffs? Tell Toronto to get up out of their funk, have a ski whistle, <laughs> and get back to work, okay? <laughs> and allow them to do the job that the referees seem to be not doing because... I'm really sick of these calls that are allowing the sh- I mean, maybe they just want the Sharks to win. Maybe they just need the narrative. You know, first off, shout out to the Steam Whistle reference. That's great. That's some local color right there. Uh, I, listen, anyone who knows me, who listens to this podcast, listens to my other podcast knows I am a review it all guy. Get the call right. Who cares? If, give the referees the tools that they need to excel at their job because I agree with everybody who says it's a real fast sport. Lots of stuff happening all the time and it's only gotten faster. They're only human. And I think the more tools that you give them to get the call right, especially when it comes to goals, the better it is. Imagine how much more peaceful my mentions would be, Emily, if they could review the hand pass and said, play on in game three. It would be so much of a simpler life um, I do want to mention, by the way, because I didn't before, um, it's a joke that the NHL didn't suspend Sammy Blay for that headshot on Justin Braun in Game 3. I will go to my grave, my grave believing that they didn't suspend him because they didn't want to pile on the blues after getting that call wrong in that game. Um, I just want to take this opportunity because we haven't talked about it on this podcast, but Rod Brindamore's impassioned defense of extended review was incredible. Oh, yeah. um, right. Now, look, he was totally on the button, in my opinion, on the nose uh, when it came to make the rest jobs easier. They're doing the best they can out there. But his suggested fix was incredible. He wants to take one of the refs or two of the refs off the ice, put them in the penalty box, uh, and he said they can wear their skates if they want to. Uh, <laughs> as only Rod Brindamore would say, like, you know, make them feel like they're part of it. Let, let them, you know, dress up every day like they were sad they couldn't dress up. Anyway, it's, it's slightly ridiculous to have them do that. Uh, you know, I, I do think there could be a bird's eye view kind of um, situation where there's someone up in the press box that can kind of see things and call down. But uh, he was totally on the nose where it's like, look, these refs, like you said, have a very hard job. I wrote about them last year, you know, all the lengths they do to keep in great shape. I think the refs would like to talk so we can humanize them a little bit more. And, and you can understand these guys just love the sport and are doing a thankless job. Uh, let's just give them all the tools to succeed. Exactly. And uh, and good stuff there. And, and uh, I agree. Just review stuff. All right. That's ESPN on Ice for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I am uh, Greg Wyshynski on Three Hours of Sleep. 
And uh, <laughs> uh, you can find my stuff at Wyshynski on Twitter. You can listen to my other podcast, Puck Soup, which is like this one, except less hockey and more cursing. Uh, keep this in mind. PSA time. Your beautiful hosts on this podcast, me and Emily, going to give you some daily content during the Stanley Cup uh, final. I don't know if we really figured it out if it's going to be video or audio yet. I think we're kind of veering towards video. But it's going to be podcasty stuff on the daily and available somewhere. <laughs> the video is going to be tough, as Greg outlined on our uh, internal call, because you can't see us right now. But Greg looks great. He's going on TV later. Yeah, He's OTL, got a tie. Baby. He's got a shirt. I meanwhile, bike tier. I am wearing a hat. <laughs> I haven't showered in a couple hours, and that's just not going to fly on video. So it's this is- really going to test our grooming habits. This is true. Also, you've forgotten to factor in that we'll be on the road together, which means, you know, copious amounts of, uh, of, of post-game Oysters and, and seafood. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, we might just do video for the sheer shock value of it. <laughs> so you can see how glamorous we look at all times. But yeah, daily stuff coming your way. We'll give you the details on it, um, via our Twitters and stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it's important, I think, for us to give you, um, a daily look at the playoffs is something we want to do. And, um, it may not necessarily be on the podcast feed, unfortunately, but it'll be, uh, in, in your, in your face and in your ear bones in some way, shape, or form. Where and can people find us? Up on Twitter if you're really interested, and I'm at Emily M. Kaplan, uh, of seeing us taste all of those fried buckets of ravioli in the, uh, St. Louis press box, because that could also be a video that we produce. Yeah. And if anybody out there works at Neptune's in Boston, my favorite single oyster bar in the world, we're heading there. Save me a, a, a table in the corner for me and Emily and Ryan Lambert and Sean Leahy. I got Izzy Kershutian in too. And, and Izzy Kershutian, my, my good friend, uh, Sean Leahy from the Puck Daddy days, as you know, doesn't eat anything really. We'll be ordering a cheeseburger at the greatest oyster bar in Boston because that's just how he is. That's ESPN and Ice for this week. A very food-centric, food-forward ESPN and Ice, now that I think about it. I really like um, uh, where we're trending with this. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll see you at the final. It's going to be a hell of a series. And uh, and if you like the show, let us know on iTunes with those reviews and those stars. Cause that's how people help find it. And uh, thanks to Tori Krug and the Bruins. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.